Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you allow your children to come together to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will open up every ears, every heart, and mind for for your word, Heavenly Father. I pray that we would decrease in every way, and may our Lord increase. Father, I pray this will be a glorifying act of worship. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, we are going to talk about worship. And when I was a teenager, I remember, probably around the age of 10, I remember my mother taking me to a church that a portion of my family attended as well. My auntie, cousins, sister, they, they attend this church to this very day. But what I remember the most about this church is the way they worship God. To give you an idea of how they worship, it's pretty close to hyper-Pentecostalism. And also has some primitive, kojic, doctrinal beliefs as well. Now, for those who are familiar with kojic, doctrinal beliefs and how they worship, you can imagine how a 10-year-old teenager might have felt. Just sitting there, watching my family along with the other members of that church, running around the church building, falling to the floor, and just talking into a language that is still unknown to me and also to mankind. So you can imagine how I might feel, just sitting there. Now, with that being said, they will worship from 11 a.m. in the morning, and the service wouldn't end until 2 p.m. (laughs) And, you know, that's okay in in the sense of how they worship, I guess. But as a teenager, I was ready to go home. Um, Yeah. And that style of worship and how they worship was frightening to me. And to be quite candid, it is still frightening to me because it's unspiritual, according to James 3.15. But this is the way they worship as a church. The way that church worship is nothing new, not at all. To give you a brief church history lesson... In the mid-18th century, there was a Christian unorthodox sect that is called the Shakers. Now, they were called the Shakers for several reasons. 
But one particular reason they were called the shakers was they had the belief that they can shake and tremble the impurity of sin out of their bodies. They would sing in circles. They would dance. And the way they dance, it will imitate what their beliefs are. That's how they worship. But the uh, Shakers' style of worship was compared to the church that I attended as a little guy is less extreme than how the Shakers worship. But nonetheless, this is how they worship. And also understanding history give us an idea of how people worshiped back then and how people are still worshiping now because it's nothing new. When it comes to different styles of worshiping, my wife and I are very particular to the point that we know what we like and don't like in a worship service. When Crystal Fellowship with believers, her main thing that get her involved in the worship service is the music. It helps her to to get involved and to emotionally and spiritually to worship God. I am the opposite. Totally opposite. I like to be intellectually engaged by the sermon first, then hear the the music in the worship service. I think the worship service complements the sermon. And that's fine. That is our personal preference. And just like my wife and I, everybody has preferences of how worship should be. When it comes to the style of music, preaching, and the liturgy of the church service, the different preferences that has every, but the different preferences that has, it has everything to do with the culture and the context of that local church. For example, there is a Christian Missionary Alliance in Tacoa, Georgia, where my wife and our my wife and I are at right now. They worship totally different than this church, which is to a CMA church. Totally different. But that is how they worship. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine because both of the church that is in Tacoa, Georgia, and the church that is here is, is culturally and contextually different. But both churches worship God within the dynamics of their cultural context. Objectively speaking, there is nothing wrong of how churches worship within their cultural context of their setting as long as the worship is biblical. As long as it's biblical. And based upon biblical truths. Therefore, there is a measure for us to 
to measure how a church worship is biblical or unbiblical. In John 4:23, our Lord has said, "The hour has come and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in what? Truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Hopefully, the scriptural text for this Sunday morning will give us a better understanding of how we are dedicated and set apart to worship the God, the Father, in spirit and in truth. So, open up your Bibles. Or turn on your Bibles. <laughs> For those who have smart devices, to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. To Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And I would like to everyone to stand, if you don't mind, to stand for the reading of God's word. I want to incorporate this as a part of our worship, our part of our worshiping God today. And that's one way we can show our reverence to God. All right. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may know the will of God, what is good, holy, and perfect. You may see that. And just to give you guys an idea of what translation I'm reading from is, is from the ESV. So the wording, if, you read, if you're not reading from the ESV, then the wording may be different, as you already know. Depending on the exact date of Christ's death and resurrection, it's most likely Paul had written the letter of Romans 20 to 24 years after the death of uh, Christ and resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. This means that the gospel has flourished for 20 and 24 years, flourished at a tremendous rate through the Romans' empire. This is evident in the letter of Romans because from Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, we see in our verses where Paul is expounding of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Since we're only covering two verses, I want to give you guys the theme of Romans as our foundation of why he says what he says in these two verses. Here's the theme of Romans. Justification and the saving righteousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justification and the saving righteousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the premise of the letter. 
non-Jewish and Jewish Christians believe in this premise. And Paul exhorted Christians not to only believe in this premise, but to obey it. This is why Paul has said in verse one, take a look. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. The word therefore capsulates the first 11 chapters of Romans, which tells us what the gospel is and what is not. Secondly, for those who weren't who, who was not Christians and Rome were pagans worshipers of mythological gods. In particular, Roman pagans namely worshipped their false god Jupiter and Zeus, well, always known as Zeus in the Greek culture. According to Roman and Greek mythology, he is the god of thunder and lightning. So the next time that you watch a movie that has the name Zeus or Thor, you will know where it comes from. But in Roman culture, they call him Jupiter Optimus Maximus. Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which means the all-good and all-powerful God. So some of you might be asking, why is this important? Or how is this relevant to our text? Is it important and relevant because pagan temple worshipers will dedicate their entire lives to worship false gods. They build massive temples, pray to spirits as part of worship. And young women will live a life of celibacy to worship their false gods. When it comes to Roman culture, there are mythological gods. Two, it is important because it gives the cultural relevant meaning to the letter of Romans and to our scriptural text, verse Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. So that is the background of the letter of Romans that give us the cultural context of what people have, how they worship and what they did to worship in the first, second century because what Paul is doing in our text he is capturing the leading culture of that day of how Roman pagans worship and he also instructs Christians not to worship like their non-Christian pagan neighbors but to worship the true living God in a holy and acceptable manner. So let's talk about holy worship. What comes to your mind when you hear holy worship? I think the leading standard is to, to have a high view of God, right? God is holy. So... And everything that God does is, is always going to be holy. So that is the standard that we, we have to live up to. 
So in order for us to worship God in a holy and acceptable manner, I want us to understand the truth of holiness before we get to the next part, which is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. So let's let's go through for a short period of time of what the word holy means. Because quite frankly, if we are not holy in our worship or holy periods, we cannot present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God as part of our spiritual worship. If our bodies are unholy, unclean, and detestable to a holy God, God would not accept anything that is unholy in his presence. So before we get to the second part, we have to understand the first one, which is holy. I think you should be mindful of two Greek words that is in our passage, which is paristema and hagios. Paristema and hagios. These, the Greek words paristema is translated into English, into the English word as present, which means to be placed aside or to offer. The Greek word hagios is translated into English as holy, which means to be set apart for the consecration for a holy God. These two Greek words that is translated in English as present and holy that is in our passage, Paul used them in the exactly same way in Ephesians 5.27. Just to give you all this ideal of what and of how he's using it, I want you to very quickly turn to Ephesians 5.27. Ephesians 5.27 says, and pay very close attention of how Paul is using these exact same Greek words that we translate as present and holy. This is what he says in Ephesians 5.27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spots or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Here we see that Paul is talking about Christ and the church. Here we see that Paul is not is, is giving us an example, not only an example about marriage, but the beautiful marriage between Christ and the church. But, and also, what Christ has done on the cross by sacrificing himself for the sake of the church, he wanted to present, paristema in Greek, the church holy, hagios. And I chose this to give us a grand ideal and a perspective of of what Christ has done, right? This is 
He wanted to present the church without blemish. And without blemish, that is, without sin. In other words, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he has presented the church, which is the universal body of believers, in him to God the Father as holy. Because the church is made holy in him. Now, not only he, since you are in the body, since you are part of the church, that means for you on a small perspective that you are holy in him as well. Now, before we jump the gun, we can present ourselves as unholy, although we are still holy in Christ. So, if you're are living a life of sin, you are unholy. Although you are in Christ. Does that make sense? For example, the same two Greek words that I just mentioned to you, Paul used them again in Romans 6, 12 and 13. Warning us by saying, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present, peristema, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But peristema presents yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here we, Paul is giving us a stark contrast of how we can present ourselves to sinful desires. And by doing so, we will fail to spiritually worship God with our bodies. When it comes to spiritual worship, this is the reality of these theological truths. And the stark difference of how we have the free will to present ourselves as unholy, but yet we're still holy in Christ. So therefore, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship, you must live a life of holiness. As one writer used said on his, I'll use this as his title, having holes in your holiness. (laughs) The title serves the point. Your conduct must be holy and without sin. Your speech must be holy and without sin. Your actions must be holy and without sin. Your thinking must be holy and without sin. As he who has called you holy, you also must be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's do it again. For I am God is holy. That is the standard. This is a standard that God has called us to. 
And as we worship him, he would not accept anything less than that standard that he has proclaimed in his word. Does that make sense, church? Now, since we have this ideal of what holy worship means, right? Let's move on to the second part, which is living, giving your, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. Understanding the importance of holy worship and presenting our bodies as holy and acceptable manner to God shows us the importance of holy worship. But let us really talk about what Paul actually means when he tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. To place things into perspective, Paul is using Old Testament illustrations, demonstrating to Christians the greater importance of how we should sacrifice ourselves on the altar of God, which is the altar of sanctification as part of our spiritual worship. In other words, to worship as a living sacrifice is to place yourself on the altar of sanctification. You must sacrifice yourself daily. Daily by putting to death the deeds of your body. According to Romans 8.13. You must place your body, mind, heart on the altar of sanctification. And this is what it would take for us to have and to, and to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, again, Paul is using this as an illustration when he, meant, when he mentioned a living sacrifice. Now, this illustration is pretty much coming from the old covenant style of worship of believers. How they worship. They worship according to the Torah and the Levitical laws, right? And once the uh, tabernacle was constructed, as part of the Israelites' worship, they would sacrifice goats, bulls, lambs, pigeons, on the altar as their worship and as God has instructed them. Interestingly, the, what God required them to sacrifice wasn't an ordinary sacrifice, sacrificial giving. God wanted the highest value to be sacrificed on the altar He wanted the value of a lamb to be without blemish. Now, these, what the Israelites sacrificed was in, very expensive, very expensive. And this is so costly and extremely costly, the Israelite would sacrifice the most expensive animal that he or she would own. Now, this is equivalent to offering for us to give away something valuable. We're in the 21st century. 
what we cherish the most would probably be money, right? Or cars, house. So, think about God asking you to give away a good portion of your financial stability. Think about God asking you to give away your car, and you know that you need it to go to work. Think about something valuable that you treasure the most. And think about what God would require of that. And that's the same thing what he required of the Israelites. He required something valuable because he knew that the way they live in their time, their livelihood, was based on how many animals they acquired for themselves. They lived a nomadic lifestyle. They were farmers. We were not, obviously. And to, to fast forward just a little bit, this is also what Christ commanded the young rich ruler to give away that all that he owned and follow him. But the young rich ruler had great possessions and did not want to give his belongings. And by doing so, he failed to worship God in this aspect, right? Nonetheless, the Israelites will sacrifice their possessions by offering an expensive animal. The high, and what the high priest would do, he would gather the sacrificial animals and place his hands on the animal as a symbol of transference of sin from the Israelites to the animal. To a sinless animal. Now, this is important because I really want you guys to understand what Paul is doing. He's taking that taking the Old Testament illustration for first century Christians that live in Rome and say, hey, the Israelites sacrificed an animal on the altar for God. And when the high priest put his hands on the animal, it was a symbol of transfer of sin. Now, within our text, this is what Paul is asking us to do as well. To put ourselves on the altar of sanctification, which is presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, I want to give you some more illustrations of how the Israelites worship and how the sacrificial system worked as well. Now, there were five major offerings that the Lord commanded Israel to do. Five. And this, this gives us a foundational understanding of our, our text. The first one, the burnt offering. God commanded the Israelites to do a burnt offering. This underscores prayers and petitions to God. 
we pray as well, right? Two, the grain offering. Another commandment God has given the Israelite. This underscores a pleasing aroma, which mirrors the emphasis of offering it accompanies. So if they were to offer an animal for a burnt offering, they will also offer the grain offering. The third of the five major offerings that the Israelites did was the peace offering. Now, the peace offerings, we can really relate to it. It fellowships, the peace offering is a fellowship with the Lord by having a communal, communion meal. We do that at the Lord's Supper. Fourth offering is sin offering. It is the atonement of, of, of a committed sin. It is a metaphor of purification. What is our sin offering? It is Christ. The fifth is guilt offering. It's the atonement of a committed sin, a metaphor of a compensation for wrongdoing. Catch the last part. A metaphor of a compensation. What is our compensation and payment of the debt that we could not give or pay off to God? It is Christ. Under the new covenant, that's how they worship. They worship God with their prayers. We, under the new covenant, we worship God with our prayers and praises. We don't have to conduct a burnt offering like the Israelites. We don't have to do that. Under the new covenant, we do not have to worship God with a peace offering because we are at peace to worship God because of Christ. We're a peace of having fellowship by being in Christ and having a communion in Christ. We are fellowship to to have to, to worship God by taking up the sacred sacrificial elements of the Lord's Supper. But keep in mind the, the backdrop of our text is being holy. It's a progression as we go along. So before we get to that presenting ourselves on the altar of sanctification, I want you guys to keep that in mind. Because Paul emphatically told us, if we have committed sin, do not come to the Lord's table. Because many of you have been sick, some even dead. So let's talk about the sacrificial worship of Christ. I think this is the best illustration anyone can give is to look at the life of Christ. Listen to me very carefully. A sacrificial worship of Christ on the cross was a unique, immeasurable 
worship that pleased God the Father. And God the Father emphatically expressed his gratitude to his beloved Son as a well-pleasing, well even my words can't express the sacrificial work of Christ. But this is what, to give us an understanding, this is what God said to his son about his spiritual worship. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Ladies and gentlemen, if God said that to his son. Keep in mind that the servants of their master is not is, is they are not the ah. <laughs> the servants of their masters. They are not greater than their masters. Since God allowed his perfect, matchless son to be sacrificed on the cross and. Since we are servants of Christ or bond servants of Christ, in the words of Paul, how much more do you think that God will require of us? God allowed, key word allowed, his perfect son to be beaten, slapped, punched, spit in the face to be whipped with sharp objects, ripping his flesh out, allowing his son beard to be torn from the hands of evil men, allowing his son to have a sharp spear pierce his sides, having the perfect sinless blood be poured out on Golgotha. How much more do you think God is going to require of those who follow his son? There's nothing less. That is the standard that God required. And it was pleasing to God the Father to do that, to send his son. Just by this alone, just alone, just by this alone demonstration, that Christ Jesus is our perfect example of how we should worship God in a holy and acceptable manner. And by giving ourselves on the altar of sanctification. This is tremendous. That is the standard. Christ drunk the cup of God's wrath, something that we can never accomplish but to worship God in the same manner of Christ. This is what he demands. He demands us to pick up our cross and follow him. The cross is a torturing device that Christ had to carry. That is the same worship that God demands. When Christ was tortured by this torture device, the cross, the Romans used this to not only 
crucify Christ, but to crucify a lot of other people. This is a common practice that the Romans used. It was a slowful, a slow and painful death, an agonizing death. How does that relate to our text? It relates to our text because if we're presenting our bodies on the altar of sanctification, it's going to require us a painful, a slow process of sanctification. You're not going to automatically be sanctified if you are unholy. Putting death to the deeds of the body take a process. So that is the perfect example of how we should worship God as our spiritual worship. It is a slow and painful, agonizing sanctification. Let's move on. Let's talk about worship of the mind. I think we have, we have an understanding of what it is. So take a look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, in our text, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewer of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What Paul instructs in verse 2 is simply enough, but a lot of Christians fail to do this. It's very simple. We can look at the text, we can read it over and over, and we can see the simplification of this text, but we fail to do it. Even myself. One way to be renewed in our minds is to be mindful of what we watch. What we hear, what we say. And this is all going back to that holy worship, being holy. Because if you are holy in your speech, in your conduct, then you have that innate ability to be mindful of what you are watching and seeing. And this is a little example what we are watching and hearing, if it's garbage, then that's the pattern of your life will come out to be. Garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. If your life is a life of holiness, it will be holy in and holy out. What you're fe- if you're feeding yourself the word of God, if, if you're a body in Christ, if you're feasting on the manna that came down from heaven. This is what your life will pattern. And to jump ahead just a little bit, we're going to get there. When Paul said that we would know the will of God, this is one way that he's telling us how we would know the will of God. 
So, if you are reading God's Word, if you are feasting on Christ, and you have a question, what, should I take this new job? Should I move to another state? Should I go, how should I go to school again? Whatever the questions that you may have, or even to myself, should I come up here to be a part of this church family? If we're feasting on the word of God, those questions, those concerns will be answered. Knowing the word of God is not some esoteric, mystical knowledge that you get from (laughs) being slain in the spirit. But it it is knowing the word. It is that simple. And if you don't know it, then you wouldn't know the word, uh, God's will. It's that simple. Nothing special about it. You would know what is good. You would know what is susceptible and what is perfect, according to our text. Now, let's uh, look at it again. Let's look at this word. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because it's a greater importance that is in our verse, in, our, in, the, in the verse 2. By using this word transform, the English word for transform is translated from Greek, which is the Greek word, is metamorpho. This is the word we get that we translate into English as metamorphosis. That's how we get our, that, that English word, metamorphosis. And this translation is correct because it carries the meaning that Paul is communicating to Christians. That is, we must transform or metamorphosize by the renewing of our mind. Just like a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. We must transform by renewing our minds. That is the greater importance that is in this text. In fact, the same Greek word, metamorpho, is also used in Matthew 17, 2, when Christ transfigured, no, literally transfigured, when he brought Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain. And he transfigured, literally showing the glory that reside in him. And his face shone brighter than what? Any bleach that can bleach clothes. According to Matthew 17, 2. That's what that word means. Metamorphosize. That's what Christ did. And when Christ did that, a voice from heaven said, This is my son. Listen to him. It's a confirmation. 
to be transformed is directly linked to discerning the will of God. If you are renewing your mind with God's word, then you know what his will is for your life. It's that simple. So we talked about holy worship. We talked about presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. I want to add just another element to and how we should worship God. This particular element is, is what causes us not to worship God that is in a holy and acceptable manner. This is, the, this is a idolatrous worship. Worshiping God in idolatry. Because I want to ask you this question. Why are you here? Why are you here? A fair answer and response should be is that you are here because you desire to hear God's word preach, to fellowship along with other believers, to bring honor and glory to Christ. And by doing so, you are worshiping God in these aspects. And that is right. That is biblical. But when it comes to idolatrous Worship. I want to attack this superficial ideal that we only worship God on Sunday and not worship God in our private lives. That is idolatrous. Idolatrous. I remember when my wife and I was at a church. And the Pastor Carter and Pastor Duncanson, our previous pastors, they were expositionally preaching through the book of Judges. And I came and how the book of Judges and the character and the people will worship God and do what God command them to do. And later on, not even later on, a generation later, which is on 10 years, they will fall back in sin. That is idolatry. Write this down. Remember it. I think this will be helpful when it comes to worshiping God. Idolatry is not only worshiping God. I mean, idolatry is not only worshiping false idols, but it is worshiping God in a false way. Does that make sense? you are worshiping God on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whenever the evening service happens, and you go home, you turn on a TV, you turn, I don't know, on a magazine, or whatever the case may be that draws you to follow your sinful desires, that is idolatrous to God. This is, uh, listen to what our Lord has said about idolatrous worship. In Matthew 
15:8, our Lord Jesus has said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Again, ladies and gentlemen, idolatry is not only worshiping false gods, but it is worshiping God in a false way. And that is a superficial ideal of professing Christians to do that. And if you are doing that, you are living in sin. One commentator said, worship is the way we live, not what we do on Sunday morning. He is right. So let's, let's draw this to a conclusion. This is how worship look. Worship is the intimacy of marriage between a man and a woman as an act of worship. Singleness is an act of worship. Working at your non-Christian job is an act of worship. Doing your best at school is an act of worship. Wives submitting to their husband is an act of worship. And husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church is an act of worship. If you're like me, who desire to work out and to run, my wife been asking me forever when I'm going to go running with her. I failed to worship God in that aspect. But listen, even to the sweat that rolls down your face when you do exercise, it's an act of worship because God has given you your bodies. And you must be stewards over your bodies. Do y'all see the big picture of how we should worship God? So whatever you do, Sunday morning to the next Sunday morning, it's your act of worship. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your saints, for your people. I pray that you would give them and help them to have the ability to understand what you require them to do when they are worshiping you. I pray that their hearts, along with their lips, will be in demand. Be alone with what they truly believe when it comes to worshiping our Lord. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for our Lord. In Christ's name, amen.